Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello, my name is Gary Mansfield, and this is the Ministry of Arts podcast, where each week I'll be speaking to a different artist. Now let's begin by bagging these bongos. Yeah, right. Crazy. Hello and welcome to episode 185 of the Ministry of Arts podcast. Well, aren't these episodes coming at you thick and fast? Well, we got a lot of love about the last two episodes. The last full episode being Haifa Studios with Camilla Cole went down extremely well. A lot of people loved what they're doing. And Azara Amor's episode, which was recorded outside the Science Museum with hordes of people walking past, also went down extremely well. It's great recording out in a crowd like that, but man, you never know what's going to happen from one second to the next. But today's episode was recorded from the comfort of my home over Zoom. And it is the one and only London art critic, Tabish Khan. I've known Tabish for some time, we speak often, and I properly admire that he doesn't just focus on the established and emerging artists. He gives as much space to the unknown or those just starting their journey. The ones that need that little bit of publicity the most, right? Well, today you're going to hear how Tabish become an art critic. It's a great story and very refreshing, and it sort of goes against that silly unwritten rule in the art world that one should just sit there and wait to be discovered rather than go knocking on doors and putting your name about, you know? But anyway, I won't give any teasers. Come and hear directly from the man himself, Mr Tabish Khan. Yeah, well, you know, we also need a lot more people in the arts world. You've got, like, thick Scottish accents like hers, you know? <laughs> Very much so. Well, as you're aware, Tabish, mm. I have seven questions I ask each guest. Right. And the yep. first would be, how would you explain what you do to someone that doesn't know you? Okay, so what I do is 
I'm an art critic, but for someone who doesn't know what that actually entails, I visit loads of exhibitions every year, hundreds, and I write about the ones that I choose to write about to recommend for people to go to them. So I'm the arts editor at Londonist, so I do like feature reviews and like big reviews of British Museum exhibitions, Tate exhibitions and roundups of lots of other shows. Yeah. What's the best stuff coming up? Uh, I similarly do feature length reviews with Culture Whisper and I also write for a website called Fad Magazine where I have a sort of top five every week and I also have a column called What's Wrong With Art which is where I look at the art world and pick something that I don't quite like the look of and then um, go at it as it were but always you know I'm a very like to think of myself a positive person so I'm always yeah. going at it with an aim to things getting better rather than just you know stepping on a puppy as it were <laughs> and do you always find it easy or difficult to find something that needs adjusting it's quite easy for me and I think we'll get onto it at some point because my background's from outside of art so for me it's kind of an outsider looking in yeah. and I think it's really it's difficult for someone to critique an institution if they're part of it because you've kind of grown up in it so you just assume things are done the way they're done because they've always been done yeah, that way. Yeah. Well, if someone comes from outside and goes, well, why, why did you do things that way? Surely that's And isn't it better. great when that happens? It is, isn't it? It's great to see someone look at it and go, oh, I wouldn't do it that way. I do it slightly differently. And, you know, that's how the world's great innovations come about. Yeah. Because somebody looks at something and, you know, I remember, you'll remember this as well as I do. Do you remember where, like, the hand dryers in toilets were just so terrible. Like they, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't dry like a few specks of water on a tissue. And now we've got a great one. So yeah. yeah, you can you can dry your shoes while you're standing in front of them. They're that powerful now. <laughs> but like you know, when with Damien Hurst and the Freeze guys from all those years ago, just stepping into the art world and go, hold on a minute, we don't think this should be done like this, and then mm. just pretty much turning it on its head and then the graffiti guys coming in several years later and doing the same to what had become the establishment then yeah and I think those artists that obviously clearly inspired you Gary the sort of YBAs they also didn't just change things they also came at a time when this is before my time but British art was quite stagnant mm. like it kind of lost what it was trying to do like there was this post-war boom and then we kind of just settled into that's how things are done. And no one was trying to change things up. So that's why when they emerged on the scene, it was such a culture shift. Well, today it's a tricky world now because I think because the Internet has made the whole world so accessible. I think it's quite hard to do major culture shifts because mm -hmm. everyone's doing everything out there. But then, you know, we've seen NFTs come along and start to shake things up a little bit. So clearly there is room for things to change even now in our arguably oversaturated world and how are you with nfts i feel like an old man when it comes to nfts because you know i feel like it's in that bucket with tiktok where i just don't get it you know i just don't understand an artist uh, an emerging artist tried to give me an nft and i tried to find out how to get myself a wallet to put it in it, was, it got so confusing it gave up yeah, looking for a frame for it. <laughs> <laughs> but I have got a first, my, I bought an NFT for like 20 quid. 
Um, and I've written a column about NFTs recently just to say, look, I don't even get them, but that's the nature of how the world changes, right? Yeah. You know, you don't want to be that person who just looks at anything new and goes, oh, you know, I feel like the people who rail against NFTs are those same people a hundred years ago who saw photography and said, that doesn't belong in a gallery. <laughs> yeah. It should be painting only. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I embrace the fact that I don't know too much about them. And I'm I'm absolutely fine with that for the moment. Um, I missed the boat, if there was a boat, of, of, you know, jumping on that bandwagon in the early days. So I figured whenever it comes the moment that I need to know about them, I'm I'm open to learning about them. But until then, I'm happy to to live in the ignorance bliss that that I do live in, you know. Yeah, and, and let's face it, it's a, it's a new world, right? So it's going to have its ups and downs. So when people say, oh, there's this new technology about and like all of the work is rubbish or the environmental impact, these are genuine criticisms that we need to acknowledge. But at the same time, it's still something finding its feet and anything that's finding its feet always has ups and downs and all over the place. I mean, like if we look at the blockchain technology it's based on, currency, so Bitcoin and other currencies have been on that platform for even longer and they still haven't quite found yeah. their feet and they may never find their feet but that's the idea it's still constant evolution let's figure things out and get there when we get there well i went into a gallery about possibly two months maybe three months ago now uh, in london i went downstairs and they had a show of nft works so they had tv screens or monitors whether it be portrait or landscape and the NFT was playing, if you like, or on show. And it felt a little bit uncomfortable for me, possibly because I didn't understand NFTs, but also because I thought that they were, if they're meant for the digital world, why are they on the wall of this gallery? You know, and I'm not saying I'm right, but it, it, that was the confusion or the confliction rather that I had at that moment. Yeah, and I think I have a similar gripe when it comes to sort of video art as well because a lot of video art or film depending on what you want to call it essentially it is a film right it's a film showing and some of these films can be quite long some can be like an hour long and you go into a gallery and it's it's an hour long and it's like there's nowhere to sit down or there's this that hard wooden bench that's going to numb your backside within five <laughs> minutes or and there's no indication that when did it start when does it finish you know, that just doesn't feel like the best way to watch video. I'd much rather someone send me a video file or watch it on my TV at home because then yeah. I've got my comfy sofa, make myself a cup of tea. Maybe that's how I want to watch it. So it is, we still haven't really got to grips with that. We just think of the gallery as the place for art. Yeah. But is it always suitable? No, I agree. I agree. And when, when was your first interest in art? So I had no interest in art growing up. Um, I was one of those people who um, went to school and university and studied science and thought the humanities were the people who wanted to doss around and not work very hard. That was me. <laughs> so I graduated as a biomedical scientist. So I cut up a lot of dead bodies, specialising in human anatomy. And then I was just looking for jobs and graduate jobs and I fell into the energy sector, which is still my day job to date. And while commuting on the underground, as everyone does with an office job, I came across, well, at least in London, I came across those adverts that said exhibition at Tate, Royal Academy, Courtauld. And I thought, you know what, I know nothing about art. Maybe I should just go and see 
what's the deal? So I started going, and I thought, oh, this is really interesting. You know, like new ideas, new new experiences. Let me keep going. And then after a while, someone said, why don't you write your own blog? Which back then in like 2008 or nine was still quite a new thing. And then after a while, I thought, well, how do I get to more people? So I pitched at Londonist who said yes. Um, and then I met Mark at a private view who runs FAD. And that led to me writing the top five for FAD. And now, what, 12 years later, those same tube posters will, rigid, uh, will occasionally have sort of like a four or five star Londonist, which is one of my reviews. Excellent. So it's really lovely to see my journey come full circle. So if you see me on the tube, you might see me like taking a picture of a tube poster and that's what I'm doing. <laughs> that's a pretty cool story. I really do like that. And how long had you been doing it when you had the confidence to contact the Londonist? I hadn't been doing it that long, I'll be honest, probably like 18 months. And I didn't even know who to contact. Uh, the only reason I contacted Londonist was I didn't even know they existed. And I was just looking for people to write about art. And I was trying to like cheekily post links to my own blog in their comments. <laughs> and Londonist was one of the only websites whose terms and conditions didn't say, if you post your own link, we'll delete it. Uh, <laughs> because everyone else says, if you post your own link, we'll delete it. So I was like, okay, I'll start posting on there. And then I thought, well, they don't have an arch writer. Maybe I'll just pitch at them. And, and it's just sheer luck. Because I think if they had said no, which they were well within their rights of to, course. I was an amateur writer, I think I might have had such a knock to confidence, I wouldn't have pitched to anyone else till yeah. several years later, maybe. And so it's just sheer luck that I made that bold choice and they said yes. And they were like, we can't afford to pay you right now. And it evolved into a paid gig over time. But yeah, that's how it panned out. So I don't think I was particularly brave. It was just lucky that my first person said yes. <laughs> and that you found a little loophole in the terms and conditions. Exactly. <laughs> So was there any art in the home growing up at all? The only art I remember in the home was so cliche, you're going to love it. It was my parents had a sort of non-edition, non-numbered, you know, just one of those little like Ikea-esque prints, but it was of John Constable's Haywain. Oh, yeah, 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 I know. Quintessential English scene of, you know, uh, a sort of a cart and horse going through some water next to a mill. <laughs> I, I do wonder whether my parents just bought it because, you know, being from India and being first generation immigrants, they were like, that's what marks you as English. You of know, course. Yeah. And why not? And why not? If you're trying to sort of set yourself into a culture, that's not a bad thing to, to have on your wall, is it? That's for sure. We've got, I, I did put out a, a thing to ask a few ask of you a few questions i had two people ask about your shirts one said that it was a, a two-way question it was top show of 2022 because now like this year we've been pretty much open since december more or less or since january more or less and the same person asked which was carol james asked your top three memorable shows of all time Okay, well, I can talk about my top shows. I should talk about the shirts at first, if some people <laughs> shirts. And what it was, was actually a friend of mine who I went to school with saw me recently dressed up in one of my funky shirts. Often I wear floral shirts for those who don't know me. And he actually said to me, he's like, Tab, you have changed 
so much. You were like such a conservative dresser <laughs> when I knew you at high school and in university. And the art world has changed you. But the one thing that actually changed it the most was actually Grayson Perry. He was giving an interview and he said something along the lines of, when you like compliment women, it's often when they're wearing something quite colourful and bold. Yeah. But with men, it's just like, it's very conservative. It's all like navy and white. And like if you go to a sort of corporate office, even the ones that have no dress code, all the men will be wearing white or blue shirts. <laughs> it's kind of, well, there's no dress code. Why are you just sticking with those colours? But yeah. it made me think, yes, I should wear more bright and brazen shirts. So I started buying some. I haven't managed to find a shirt sponsor. So if someone's listening, <laughs> think of one that gets me more shirts, then that would be great. Well, uh, there was a photograph of you and Michael Warner and Michael Warner at the, sh at the art fairs. He wears a, um, a blood, a blood drip. A, a paint dripped blazer doesn't he mm. and you standing next to him sort of like nearly broke my phone you know when I saw <laughs> when I saw that there, there wasn't enough coloured pixels to take up the pair of you in the photograph <laughs> yeah but I think it's just one of those things that you know it's that kind of thing that's fun and also now through the Instagram because it's quite a visual culture I think people appreciate someone wearing something quite oh, bold and different and the art world is very sort of I know this is to not draw attention away from the paintings, but everyone tends to wear black. Um, I remember I was once in Canada on holiday and it was the launch of some, it was the launch of their contemporary art museum in Toronto. And I was going towards it. And because I was in a foreign country, I was like, am I going in the right direction? Because it's a bit hidden away. Yeah, yeah. And then I saw two people walking in that direction. And they were both all in black and they had tote bags. And I thought, <laughs> the art uniform is universal. That's, yeah. They're going to where I'm going, so let's follow them. Um, but yes, that is that is a strange one. In terms of my shows for this year, I'm trying to think what my favourite is to date. I mean, there's been some huge shows this year, including sort of um, Van Gogh self-portraits at Courtauld, Francis Bacon at Royal Academy, I think the one that I would draw attention to, because it's a bit off the beaten path, is Rana Begum at Pittshanger Manor. So Pittshanger Manor, for those who don't know, is developed, was designed and built by John Soane, who's the guy who did the John Soane's Museum and Bank of England. So it's a beautiful piece of architecture that really relies on light coming through at certain angles. And Rana Begum has these sort of ethereal colorful meshes and strings that she creates sculptures with and so they really play off the light and it's just yeah it's perfect when an artist complements the architecture of the building and that's really what you want and it's quite a hard space to fill so I think she's done a excellent job and she's also an artist who you know definitely who's doing well but wants to also keep an eye out because she's gonna go from strength to strength and can you name how many was it three the top three of all time or at least some of the most memorable yeah top three from all time i think the ones are the um one i'd mentioned was the sensing spaces which was an architecture exhibition at the royal academy which is quite rare to have an architecture exhibition in their main spaces and they got different architects to build structures in the space and it was amazing because it also gets you to appreciate the Royal Academy space. So that one structure let you climb up and get within like touching distance of the ceiling. Now, if anyone who's been to Royal Academy of Arts knows, 
the main galleries, the ceilings way, way up there. So you're never close to it. So that was quite a rare experience. I was trying to think the other ones that might hit me would probably be things like at the Tate Turbine Hall. I remember there was one by Miroslav Balka, which was this big shipping container that was so black, you kind of disappeared into it. So as you're walking in, people are walking out and you don't see them until they're pretty much on top of you. And you're like, oh, could dodge them. Um, and it's just quite a, yeah, it's just quite a heavy experience. And I always feel um, a bit disappointed. I started writing after Olaf or Elias and had the sun and the take turbine horse. That never actually beautiful. saw it. Man, that's what I thought you was going to say. When I saw that, I mean, and I didn't know that artist either at the time, but when I saw that sun, it was the sun. It, you could, you couldn't feel any heat radiating off of it, but you, your your brain was telling you it, it was hot and don't go closer. You know, it was it was amazing. Yeah, and I think those are the kind of things that people absolutely adore. You know, something that is like a, it's an experience that you'll never forget, right? So I think those those I've mentioned two. I'm trying to think of a a third one that I'll go for. Well, you know, or maybe I'll go for sort of like an older artist, like a, from um, from hundreds of years ago. I'll go with Tate Britain for their sort of John Martin exhibition. Because I like John Martin. Okay. Yeah. Big sort of fiery volcanic landscapes, like apocalyptic. And it's strange because he wasn't much liked at the time when he made those in the Victorian era because everyone thought he was a bit too over the top. And I like <laughs> the idea of John Martin being like the Michael Bay of his time, you know, like making Transformers movies with things exploding. He just went over the top. And that was, I thought, a great exhibition because he was, um, yeah, I thought that was brilliant. And to be fair, Tate Britain right now, at time of recording, is is on a high because they've got Cornelia Parker there. I've not been there yet for that. Yeah, Hugh Locke, who's in the Duveen, the main galleries, that's also brilliant. And Walter Sicker, who's also an excellent painter. So, you know, they're doing really well right now. Well, I wrote to Cornelia while I was in jail and she replied a few times. And then one time, I think I've mentioned it on here before, she contacted me out of the blue and she asked if she could have some of my, my navel lint, which oh. is the posh word for belly button fluff. Mm-hmm because she was doing this project and getting belly button fluff from an array of people and, uh, you know, in different jobs and different parts of life. And she was zooming into it microscopically. And she said, look like these, um, like sort of like little, the, the Milky Way, if you like, you know, these little solar systems. Um, she mentioned that she had, she had Paul Weller was one of the names. I can't remember who the other name was. And then um, she mentioned that I'm going to be in it as well. So when I saw Paul Weller, I thought, oh, that'll do me. But you wouldn't understand how difficult it is to try and get naval lint out of a prison legally. (laughs) (laughs) You know, saying to a prison officer, it's for, you know, it's for an art exhibition by a very famous artist who they don't know, you know. And they're like, well, why is it belly button? Why is it belly button lint? And it's because that's what it is. And. Yeah, it was difficult. It was, but she got it. She mentioned to me years later that she got it. She must have some very good connections with the police because some of the works that I saw in her show are currently on at Tate Britain. I just thought 
because like she had the burnt remnants of a pile of cocaine. Brilliant. Um, she had a shotgun that, because obviously you made a joke that gangsters often saw off the barrel, <laughs> made a sawed off shotgun. So she sawed it into pieces. But I was like, the police probably, if you go to the police, go, I want a shotgun so I can saw it into pieces. They're probably be like, no, can't have it. <laughs> yeah, well, she, I think she's at the point now where she can sort of pretty much ask anyone for anything. And, and at least the door would be a jar for her to to stick yeah. her head behind you know whereas we'd all all be banging on that door wouldn't we you know well i did have a hilarious encounter with an artist who basically there was a show that was in a car park and the theme was everything had to be black and white so he thought what he would do <laughs> is dress in black in a car park with sunglasses on <laughs> sell little bags of cocaine because it's white powder yeah. And obviously it wasn't cocaine, it was just plaster. But he actually spoke to a lawyer around whether he could do this or not. And the lawyer said, the fact that you're selling something called cocaine, which isn't <laughs> cocaine, he said, that's not the problem. No. The problem is it's plaster. And let's say someone buys it, like Tab buys it, puts it in his house. Someone visiting might see the label cocaine and think it's genuine cocaine and then snort it. And that could cause health problems because it's plaster. So the only thing he had to do legally was put something on the big letters saying not for human. But <laughs> <laughs> well, you say that there's a great exhibition by an artist called Carsten Holler at Hayward Gallery. So people will know him as he did the, the big slides in Tate Turbine Hall. Yeah, and he's yeah. also got a slide attached to the, um, the tower in the Olympic Park, the Arcelor orbits by um, Anish well, Kapoor. Yeah. So he's known for kind of fun, playful things. And one thing he had at Hayward Gallery was he had this gallery where pills drop from the ceiling and they drop one by one into this massive pile and there's a water fountain and you can take a pill and swallow it if you want. Uh, you don't have to. And I remember I went to that exhibition and I saw it. And I was like, screw it, took a pill, water, swallowed it. And people looked at me like, what the hell are you doing? I'm like... It's the Hayward Gallery. <laughs> genuinely dangerous. They made me sign a disclaimer, and they didn't. So it's got to be a placebo. <laughs> well, you'd hope so, wouldn't you? Although you had a big mop of bushy hair at the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I, th I think it's the day job that actually made it. Uh, not the art job. <laughs> if you could create an exhibition, or in your case, if you could critique an exhibition of f any five artists, who would they be? Hmm. Any five artists? Not sure. I could pick a favorite five. You know, it's like making people pick their favorite children, isn't it? You know, like, <laughs> what do you want to do? Um, oh, mine's my daughter. <laughs> <laughs> Easy. I, I remember, I've, I've said that to a few parents, and they're like, they never say, but they <laughs> but you know, favorite. they know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I find this really tricky when I've got exhibitions and I'm trying to invite artists. Yeah. Um, and it's quite publicly known that I'm picking artists. It's always like, who do I pick and who do I not? And well, the others who don't get picked get offended that they weren't <laughs> in my selection. I don't know. I was trying to think of what I'd want. I'm trying to make it as varied as possible. I think that's what I want to do. Um, I'd want to have every sort of crazy over-the-top artists that I'd like to have in it I'd like I would like Damien Hurst to do something mad and new for it because I think yeah. when he does when he goes mad and new I think he's quite interesting I, I think agree. at the moment he's doing stuff that's kind of what he's done before which is yeah. 
um, which isn't great. And I've also I've always loved writing about Kusama's infinity rooms where they just have the mirrors. That means it goes on yeah, forever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've seen them so many times, and people say, "Well, can't you see them too many times?" Every time I go, <laughs> I love it. But I can't <laughs> enjoying it. Uh, we talk about Cornelia Parker. Her exploded barn is one of my favorites. Oh man, amazing. That's um, that's a, but yeah, for people who are listening who haven't heard about it, it's a barn that she exploded with Semtex using the military engineers to help her, and then she picked up the pieces and assembled them in like a big, giant cluster, with yeah. a single light bulb in the middle that lights them, so they spin around in the air currents. I think that's that's stunning. Um, in terms of sort of newer, younger artists, I think there's always someone doing something interesting. Um, we were talking about, talked about Rana Begum. I'm trying to think of new names. I'm trying to think of names that I'll throw in there that I'll be like, oh, that'll be someone who's doing something really different. I think the last thing that I saw by quite a young artist that was new to me was Studio Voltaire by an artist called Every Ocean Hughes, who did this kind of performance video about essentially what they call themselves is referred to as death doulas. So these are people who handle the sort of preparation of a dead body for the rituals that are required by certain communities. And they were talking about all the things they have to think about that the family won't think about. So for example, the family will turn up to prepare a body for burial, but if they've been through the grieving process, so they normally they haven't really thought about their own health. So this death tool always has like chocolate bars and water bottles on hand Brilliant. to keep them hydrated and sugared, which I was like, oh, it's something you just don't think about at all. But you're like, yeah, yeah it's good to have to hand to stop anyone like might faint or something. Yeah, so that was that was interesting for me. Um, and one of the artists, um, a lady called Andrea Teramos, who's um, an artist I own paintings by, uh, she's she always refers to me as the first first writer who ever wrote about her work. Uh, oh, nice! Yeah, and I too her paintings. She's doing so well. She does a lot of portraits now. She does them on steel, and they're all about people who suffered from mental health um, issues uh, or struggled with mental health. And the idea is obviously it's on steel, so the surface itself is kind of rusting. It's found steel, so it's rusting itself. And it I love how that kind of represents all of us as well that we're yeah all yeah of course the inside and the outside you know <laughs> and it's just how we all are and uh, she's done some amazing work and her work's moved on a lot since i knew her when she used to do more sort of street art style work and i think you know that's the genuine joy of being a writer who's been around for like 10 12 years is that you get to see people's work evolve and yeah. i mean that's just it's, it's lovely, isn't it, when you're help I mean, I remember I spoke to someone who was very established in their corporate career, and they said, you know what, the thing you always remember is how you helped others, not what you achieved yourself. Yeah, yeah. And I think that is such a great way of looking at it, right? Yeah, you know, agree. I'm, in a, I'm in a position of some privilege of being a writer, and it gives me the opportunity to advance others and help others. And if they go on to bigger and better things whether they remember me for it or not it doesn't really matter <laughs> it's just great to see them achieve and well, now you're very established as an art writer and uh, by your own admission you was quite a 
sort of novice when you got your first paid job. Can you remember the point when you thought, I'm no longer an imposter, if you like? So one thing I'll always say is that imposter syndrome never leaves you. And it's shocking when you even hear like CEOs say that they still feel like an imposter. I still feel like an imposter because, you know, I didn't study art history. I'm not from the same background that everyone else is. So even sort of like 25 year olds in art. Um, so I should point out I'm 39. So four, 14 years younger than me. I always feel like, but they grew up with art. So they, oh, I feel like they I'm know exactly more the same as that than yeah. I do. Yeah. And it's just like, oh, and you know, they got parents who steep them in art from a young <laughs> age. And you're like, well, where, who, who am I? And also, you know, you know, when I when I give an opinion and it's different to the opinion of say the Guardian or the Times or the Evening Standard or Time Out, I'm like, who am I to disagree with these sort of seasoned yeah. professionals who've been writing for so much longer than I have? It's an opinion and, and they're never right or wrong, are they? No, and also, you know, everyone's got their own different angle in the world. Like if you look at the, the big critics like Adrian Searle, Jonathan Jones, uh, Laura Cooming, you know, the, the world doesn't need another one of them. They've got one of them. Yeah. They need me with my voice. And, you know, it's quite hard, you know, because you get, you get a lot of knockbacks. And, I mean, you know, I've had quite a few criticisms of my work people have come after me on a few occasions on instagram <laughs> twitter oh. and yeah you always kind of have to think that's weirdly a compliment because you're worth coming after <laughs> <laughs> yeah you're, you're worth the energy <laughs> yeah so you just have to think of it that way and you know i've never i mean obviously i have critiqued honestly and sometimes i said negative things about exhibitions but you know i'm not in the bit not in this business to make myself feel better by making other people feel small that is yeah. not something I ever want to do but you know people it's the same you know people don't know you all they see is your outputs and they might look at it and think oh this is just some angry guy having a go at someone and therefore they're fair game for me to come at um, <laughs> so it's 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 a strange world I mean like Jonathan Jones who writes for the Guardian who really goes off on one at some exhibitions like his his writing would be properly vitriolic in person he's not a scary man in the slightest you know. well I had the absolute pleasure when I was in prison this is of having a project of mine critiqued by Brian Sewell and it was a um I I become obsessed with the golden mean when I discovered what it was and it's got many many names and at the same time, bearing in mind, I just discovered art. So, you know, everything was new to me. But when I discovered that the golden mean was in everything, um, astounded me. And at the same time, I was obsessed with Francis Bacon. And knowing that he was a very spontaneous painter, I thought, I, I wonder what would happen if I laid this very sort of rigid system on top of his very spontaneous brush marks. And Tabish, it was pinging in on every painting. It would be like the light switch would be at one of these cross points, or you know, one of the one of the points would go through his eyes, for instance, or through his watch hand, you know, through the center of his watch. And I thought I properly thought I was on something. And I was at the point at this point, I was writing to um, an art critic called David Lee, and uh, yeah, it ended up with Brian Sewell. And I got a letter back from Brian saying that this is a, a beautiful project yet unfounded because Francis Bacon would never 
um, have used that system. And even if he did, he would never have admitted to it, you know, if he was still here. But yeah, what a compliment. And then I found out that Brian Shaw started his art career working in prisons, you know, in the art class in prisons, which I thought was great. Yeah, amazing. And and also, you know, the the whole thing about coming from a non-art background. I mean, I've got this, I don't think I can ever say it without being joking about it because it sounds too arrogant, but I've been given this kind of nickname of the people's art critic. <laughs> um, and that's because I've come from a background. <laughs> we're not worthy. Bowing, yeah. We're not worthy. Uh, yeah, and that's because I've come from a background of non-art. So I don't, I write for other people who are like the old me, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. Well, that's exactly where I'm coming from with mm. with this podcast, even. And I think that's what the world needs because I remember um, I I said this once in a talk, which was that you know sometimes you go to an exhibition and it's got rave reviews, and you can't quite tell why it's got rave reviews. And I always joke that that's because someone was asked to curate it, and that curator studied art history at the Courtauld who then gives it to a PR professional photo who studied art history at the oh, Courtauld, yeah. who pitches it to a bunch of journalists who study art history at the Courtauld. And you're like, there's nothing wrong with that degree. It's a fine degree, but it means that all those people, even if they look and sound quite diverse, have all come from a similar line of thinking. Yeah. Yeah. And what the world needs is more diversity. And I don't just mean diversity in things like race, sexuality. No, no, yeah. Um, but I just mean all sorts of diversity of thought. Um, and I think that's what we're sometimes missing in the art world, because it can be a bit bonkers. I remember I'll be talking to someone who works, I don't know, let's say working in an auction house. And we could talk about this work selling for like £200,000, like it's the most normal thing in the world, knowing that her, the person I'm speaking to, and I could never afford £200,000 <laughs> for an artwork. And it's just like, but we're talking like it's the most normal thing in the world. Yeah, brilliant. Well, that's, I mean, you know, you're, you're speaking to an artist who discovered art whilst doing a, you know, a 14 year prison sentence. There's not too many of me in the art world either, you know? <laughs> no, I'm not, sure. not sure how many of you the art world can handle, Gary. And I think that's what other opportunities come about from. For example, if you look at things like social media, now, of course, let's face it, you know, there are lots of negatives to social media in terms of impact on people's mental health and the sort of like the mm. fake news that's been spread through it. But it's also allowed a bunch of artists to access an audience who aren't represented in the gallery system that yeah. is normally the channel that, because for example, even someone like me as a writer and a critic, I'm actually quite a few steps away from the coalface of creating art because I'm essentially relying on emails from galleries, PR specialists, and so forth to come through to me, and then I filter what's there. But that means I don't get to see the things that don't even make it through the first round yeah, that is an yeah. email to me. So I'm also acting very filtered, and things like social media do let people access people who just the art world is shunned or <clears throat> and that's what things like art fairs like the other art fair Roy's art fair and talented art fair enable people to do is just put themselves out there and get a platform that maybe the galleries aren't willing to entertain yeah I agree totally if you wasn't an artist Tabish what would you like to be 
sorry, if you wasn't an art critic, Tavish, what would you like to be? I don't know. I can't. I, you know, I, this is going to sound really, um, really corny, but I do think writing about art is like I, it's it's the dream job for me. Um, mm -hmm. I do think again, it would be a better, more of a dream job if it paid me enough to quit the day job. But you know, <laughs> you know, baby steps, baby steps. Uh, but if I wasn't, I was thinking because I studied um, biomedical science, as I mentioned at the beginning, and. You know what at the time the university was pushing people towards research because they said that's where the degree leads you yeah but now looking back with my current lens on i wonder whether um because my love for science is still there so i wonder whether being a writer and that science thing whether i could have ended up in something like science journalism or writing yeah 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 or something like that that could have been a fun job to have ended up at and yeah, maybe I would have become that, uh, but yeah, I don't know. I don't think I'm called to art criticism the way that, you know, when you speak to certain artists, they're like, I need to create to survive. I'm not like that at all. You know, I'm very much, I could have easily ended up anywhere. You know, <laughs> example, like, You're just in a, a, a yacht without a compass, just see where you land. Yeah, I think that. But then also, I think that, you know, we we ascribe too much to kind of personal destiny, as it were. I think you could, any one of us could end up in any situation. Yeah. It's just a case of where fortune leads. I mean, you would know this much better than I, Gary, when talking about sort of like prison. But I remember there was this journalist who went to interview people on death row in America. It's like the most hardened of criminals. And he was saying that, yeah, like, 90% of them grew up in an abusive home with not even one book to read and it's like well if I grew up in that background he's not saying I would definitely end up on, in prison but I'd have had a very different start to life yeah, probably yeah. wouldn't let me journalism and I think I'm the same you know what if certain things didn't go certain ways I could have ended up in any career I think I just don't think I was destined to be an art writer but I'm just very happy that that's where I've ended up. Superb. And where can anyone find you, be it website or social media? Yeah, so my website is www.tabish-khan.com. Um, and I've also got um, on social media, Instagram and Twitter, I am at London Art Critic. And I also, through both all of those mediums, you can be able to find I've got a weekly mailing list called Keeping tabs. Um, it's a great name that, thank, unfortunately, I didn't come up with. It had a really boring name, and then someone just said to me on Twitter, "Like, why is this mailing list not called Keeping Tabs?" Brilliant. Like, Better change it. Um, I should laugh that. I should also note that London Art Critic is my handle, and it's bizarre. I only picked that quite at random at the time. Yeah. But it's become such a strong name because people just google london art critic and they find me and and also you know people come up to me who recognize me through instagram they look at me a bit longer than is normal <laughs> and then they wander over and they're like excuse me is it is it london art critic and i'm like well yeah that's not my name but yes that is me you know so excellent it's amazing how that kind of just you know sticks with people and how does it work when you venture out of the smoke into another part of the country 
Well, as a born and bred Londoner, I should add that I live five minutes from the hospital I was born in. So Excellent. I'm very, very, and my parents are 10 minutes down the road. My brother's So you've only just ventured a little further than the umbilical cord itself. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I've always made the joke that when, you know, when I step outside the M25 and smell the cleaner air, I feel a little bit weaker. You know, <laughs> away. Uh, but I've, I quite, I've started to branch out more because, you know, we've got wonderful art institutions and don't get me wrong, London is amazing and there's, you know, you can never, you know, as Samuel Johnson said, a man who's tired of London is tired of life. Yeah. But there's a lot more beyond London and, you know, like the Ashmolean I went to recently, Kettle's Yard in Cambridge, gone up to Yorkshire Sculpture Park a couple of times. There's a new museum called The Box down in Plymouth, which is very impressive. And most recently of all, I went to Venice to see the, the Biennale. Brilliant. Uh, which was... I mean, it always is spectacular, but you know, obviously, it's been postponed because of COVID. So I've only been once, and it was it was amazing. It's just so much art. Yeah, and it's in the perfect setting because it's a city that you just walk around, just stumble across art, and you're like, of oh, course, there's some art around the corner. Let's just go in here and see see what happens. So yeah, we are very fortunate in London, but it is important to to get outside more and more. What uh, did you see at Kettle's Yard? Was it I Weiwei? I went to see Ai Weiwei, yeah. Um, and do you know of Kersler Arts? Yes, the, I do. The prison yeah. cherry. They've got Ai Weiwei is their curator this year. Excellent. I think he's the perfect artist to have representing prison arts. Oh, definitely, given how much he had his own imprisonment in yeah. China. Um, I did quite like it because he lives in Cambridge, so he was there to kind of open his exhibition with us, like sort of journalists there. Yeah. And... The Guardian had been in early and given his like exhibition a two star review. Oh shit! Really? Yeah. Wow! And, they, and when he was given an interview with the curator or the museum director, just as we opened the show, um, somebody was the, he was asked that you know what do you think about sort of like China censoring your art? And he said, "Well, it's like the Guardian doesn't even rate my art, so I don't know why China's got a problem with it." <laughs> great someone to be so self-referential yeah. and joke about it and you know what that is the the stuff that i like i once interviewed uh, mr brainwash who's sort of like a street artist and i must admit i don't like a lot of his work and he's not everyone's cup of tea but i remember i asked him about would you think about people not liking your work and he's like doesn't really matter as long as like one person likes my work that's all that matters really and you know, yeah free i to think whatever they want I mean, I try and embrace everyone's work, you know, but I've got to say, Mr. Brainwash, I can't, I don't mind his stuff. I just, I can't understand how he's as big as what he was, is. Yeah, I think he's... Um, but good then, luck you know, to him. Yeah, I say good luck to them. And also, you know, it's when we're dealing with the market of arts and how much things sell for, you've got to remember it's only... To become huge, you only need to appeal to like 0.1% of the world's population. It just happens to be the 0.1% that have fat wallets. So, <laughs> so it's it's not really representative of how no. great an artist is if they're selling really well. It just needs a certain amount of people. And the price of art is a very tricky thing to really get your head around because there's so many other levers at work to determine yeah. how much something costs because you know for example 
if a super wealthy Uber collector bought your work, as it were, Gary, then suddenly all the other super wealthy Uber collectors who he hangs out with are thinking, oh, I want to miss out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we want to Gary Brownsfield. And then once all these famous collections have it, then all the museums like, why don't we have one of these? And that's how it kind of happens. So I remember once there's a great little story that I once had when I went to the White Cube in Bermondsey, which is like a huge gallery and it's massive. And there's a Rakeeb Shaw exhibition whose work sells for like a million odd now. Um, And I was there to see it before it opened to the public as, as a journalist. So I turned up to meet the press person. And at the same time I walked in coming off the Northern Line into the White Cube, someone pulled into the courtyard in a, I think it was a Mercedes SLS AMG, which is like a 350,000 pound <laughs> supercar, right? He got out and was met by Jay Joffling, who, who owns and runs the White Cube. And I was met by my press person. And we were given a tour at the same time, obviously separate tours. Yeah. And I was being told about the art and he was being given the hard sell, as it were, about whether he needs one in his collection. And we left at the same time, him in his supercar, me back on the tube and I did think I was like for a very weird bizarre moment our lives have overlapped but they will never overlap again (laughs) and we move in two separate circles yeah Um, brilliant and to be fair when I look at um uh it's very much in line with my ethos that nearly everyone I spend time with in the art world is usually at sort of the emerging end and the reason for that is not because that's the people I prefer spending time with. It's just kind of, that's who I can help the most, you know, yeah. the established artists. Okay, I write about them, but they don't need me. They don't need my help. They're doing fine. The established collectors are fine. The big galleries are fine. But if I can use the platforms that I have to also write about them, because people do want to see their work, but also write about artists who are less well-known, then I think that's where I can probably add the most value. No, I, I agree. And it's it's those guys that need that platform and no doubt appreciate what you've written. Definitely, I hope so. You know, I always get, um, you never know when you write stuff because you never know who reads it, right? Once it's out there, it's out there on the internet. You know, nobody actually comes back to you and says, oh, that was a great piece you wrote, Tad. Well, you do it occasionally, but most of the time you have no idea whether it's been received badly or well. Though actually, if it's been received badly, they'll let you know. <laughs> They normally let you know quite quickly. <laughs> and as you mentioned earlier, you know, you've had a had a few people come looking for you online. I had a I once had a to my editor, somebody sent a full like page long email about having a go at me. I was like, wow, okay. And is... was that an artist or a viewer? Well, weirdly enough, it was I can't actually name the no, artist right. now because I'm gonna say how they're linked to the artist, <laughs> which would give me away. But it was basically someone who worked front of house at the gallery that represented the artist. And I did think to myself, if your gallery knew you were sending that, they wouldn't be happy no. about it. I mean, obviously I didn't kick up a fuss. I'm not here to get anyone to trouble, but it was just hilarious that someone took the effort to write, you know a well thought through criticism of my own criticism but you know if i'm going to put myself out there then i've got to also accept that exactly people will come and yeah. criticize me that's just life and i never claim to have a monopoly on the answer you know i've got an opinion you may completely disagree with my opinion i'm more than happy for you to disagree with my opinion um quite 
I'm always for, up for encouraging debate. I mean, obviously, there are lines, obviously, if someone's being like very... Of course, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. not okay. But any other debate, I'm quite happy to to entertain it. Unfortunately, social media does not lend itself to considered <laughs> constructive debate, so they often evolve quite quickly, and I can see it evolving, and I quickly step out of it. Like, I'm not getting yeah. dragged down there. This is an arena I don't want to be a part of. Brilliant. Well, Tavish, that's all my questions asked. So thank you very much for your time. I really do appreciate it. No, it's great to be on, Gary. And obviously, you know, as a long-time listener, first-time caller, <laughs> great to be part of it. Excellent. Thank you very much, mate. Yeah, and I'll see you soon, I'm sure. See you all right. later, Tavish. Take all care. the best, mate. Bye-bye. You too. Bye. Well, hope you enjoyed that episode of the Ministry of Arts podcast. So we wasn't dictated to by advertisers, we decided from the offset to go ad-free, which means obviously we had to self-fund. So we set up the Ministry of Arts Patreon page. And without that support, we would not be able to produce this podcast. So if you like what you hear and you're able to support the podcast, just go over to the Ministry of Arts Instagram profile. You'll find a Linktree drop-down box, which will direct you straight to our Patreon page. And for the price of a cup of coffee, you can help keep us growing week by week. But if you're not able to do that, that's fine because this content is free for everyone. But leaving a review on whichever platform you listen to your podcast, that really does help us get noticed and anyone else looking for an art podcast. Or even giving us a positive shout out on your social media. Everything is appreciated. But either way, thanks for listening. And until next week, Zad Art. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.